the changes going on in higher education are extraordinary now. Students are thought to be consumers. You have to make consumers happy. You can't make consumers happy if uh, they are getting low grades. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green, 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to the fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Ronald Ehrenberg, the Irving M. Ives Professor of Industrial and Labor Relations and Economics at Cornell University. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his work in the economics of higher education including time as a vice president at Cornell and as a member of the Board of Trustees of the State University of New York. Ron, welcome to The Work Goes On. Glad to be here, Orly. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up, Ron? I grew up in uh, New York City in a place called Stuyvesant Town, Stuyvesant Town was a major uh, project of the uh, LaGuardia administration. And of course, uh, and it was sort of like the Mitchell Lama housing is now. There were income cutoffs. You couldn't earn uh, too, too much. And preference were given to veterans. So the first generation of uh, residents were all res, uh, were all veterans, but in particular they were white veterans, because LaGuardia was so concerned about uh, getting this project built that he agreed to a restrictive covenant that said only whites could live there, and of course those of us who were there saw a lot of people who looked like us, but there were very few people who didn't look like us. Like us. <laughs> and uh, in 1967, I'm going to say, uh, when I already was long gone, there was a suit brought uh, which said you cannot have restrictive covenants. So uh, it was still owned by Metropolitan Life then. And they said, fine, but we're going to have alumni preferences like they have at universities. And if you had relatives already living there, then you move to the head of the uh, admissions list. And it was only years later that that finally uh, uh, was eliminated. So you grew up in right in Manhattan. Where did you go to high school? Uh, I went to a high school called Stuyvesant High School, which may have its name changed soon because Peter Stuyvesant was a noted anti-Semite. Uh, and and Stuyvesant, uh, it, it, it's amazing how the same issues keep reappearing. Stuyvesant High School is, uh, at the time, was one of the three 
selective high schools, which you had to take a test to be admitted. Um, and uh, it was very, very selective. Because it was all male, which now, of course, it's not, uh, each year the number of PhDs awarded to former uh, Stuyvesant High School graduates was the highest in the nation. So I tell people the hardest thing I ever did academically was to go to high school where I just barely finished in the top 20% of the class. That sounds like quite a high school. I'm afraid I might not have made it at all. <laughs> now, where did you go to college? Well, uh, my parents were both New York City school teachers. Uh, they did not have a lot of money. Uh, at the time in New York, we were allowed to apply to uh, four colleges, one of the city university uh, campuses, uh, and they let me apply to Cornell. Uh, but there was no question about my going there, which I was admitted because basically this was before uh, the unionization and collective bargaining for teachers. And in a relative sense, teachers were uh, as more poorly paid than they are uh, even uh, today. So I applied to a new public university, Harper College, which uh, was a liberal arts college in Binghamton, uh, and now is the liberal arts college of Binghamton uh, University. Uh, as I said, I got into Cornell, and uh, but I knew I couldn't go there. Uh, there. Interestingly, there is a school of industrial and labor relations, as you know, at Cornell, which is part of the public part of the university but I wasn't smart enough to realize that. And in addition, uh, I was a math major and I wasn't thinking about uh, economics yet. So uh, I went to Harper College, uh, which turned out to be an excellent uh, uh, decision. The, since it was the only public liberal arts college in the SUNY system, competition to get into it was extraordinary. Uh, and in my graduating class of roughly 400 students, uh, over 10% went on to receive PhDs, and half of them were women, uh, which again was way ahead of uh, its, its time. Uh, and uh, I met the woman uh, who became my wife uh, there, which I guess was the most important part <laughs> and why I'm such a dedicated alumni. That's nice, actually. I know you, I saw you won an award there. And how, now, how did you end up in graduate school in economics? I, I was a math major, and when I got to a real uh, uh, advanced calculus, which is now called real analysis, which was all proofs, if there were five questions on a test and you got one right, and only part, and part of a second right, you would get an A. And I was frustrated. How could I get an A if I didn't know a lot? So I switched to physics. And in a second uh, year physics class, there was something that I didn't understand. I can't even remember. Well, I think it was something called Thevenin's theorem. And I went up to the professor and I said, I don't understand this theorem. And he said, I don't understand your question. And then he, he gave me an A. Well, if, if 
there was an engineering school, I might have become uh, an engineer. But the only other two subjects that involved math were economics uh, and accounting. And this was a very exciting time for economics, uh, about around 1964, because for the first time we thought we could control the economy with fiscal and monetary policy. And in addition, if you knew calculus, microeconomics was trivial. So I made the decision to become an economist uh, when I was a junior uh, in college, uh, but I stayed as a math major uh, all the way through. And how did you end up at, I know you went to Northwestern. I, I have to go back now and tell you about a defining event in my life. When I was four years old, or three or four years old, an aunt took me uh, to a lake in upstate New York called Lake Mayopac, and she deposited me on a ladder going into the lake. And being an inquisitive young man, I decided to do an experiment. What would happen if I took one hand off? What would happen if I took two hands off? What would happen if I took one foot off? Uh, and when I uh, woke up, someone leaned over me and said, you almost drowned. You swallow the whole lake. And uh, so that instilled in me uh, a f tremendous fear in death, uh, of death, which I fortunately got over quickly, but a fear of failure, which stuck with me for a long time. And after that, I would be reluctant to do anything that might lead to my failure, and which uh, also uh, I had to do things quickly because the quicker I did it, the quicker, uh, the shorter the time uh, I, that I hadn't failed. So when I got to graduate school, I, uh, to my senior year in college, I just didn't even apply to the first top 10 economics programs. But I did apply to Princeton, which is in the top 10. And I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe it was because it was close to New York City, so I could see my family often. And of course, I didn't get in, <laughs> but I got a wonderful letter from Richard Lester, who took the time probably to write to all of the candidates who uh, were not admitted, saying how hard it was. We had many qualified applicants, and we could not uh, admit them all. And that was a great learning experience for me because it taught me a little bit of kindness uh, really cuts the pain of not getting something. And I've tried to emulate him uh, in my behavior going forward. So I quickly set a decision rule, and the decision rule was the economics program had to have eliminated the language requirements and instead substituted math for it. That was great. And second, I would go to whatever school I was admitted to, the best school that had the uh, most financial aid. And that turned out to be Northwestern. And it turned out that was a wonderful choice because uh, Northwestern had an outstanding faculty. And a, a young assistant professor had just come named Dale Mortensen. And he uh, became my advisor. 
Uh, he couldn't be my formal advisor because Northwestern would not allow people to be primary advisors until they had tenure. But he truly was my advisor. And the only thing I complained to him about uh, was when he won the Nobel Prize uh, sometime around, I think it was 2010, I said to him, why didn't you win it earlier when it would have done me, you know, some good? What, uh, so what, and what was your dissertation? Well, my dissertation was a, uh, I should say, came partially from Robert Solo, a Nobel Prize winner, Sherwin Rosen, and Walter Oy, because uh, Dale told me to write to, uh, to Solo to ask him about a paper, which he thought I would like. I did. Uh, Solo wrote back and said, we still have duplicating machines. We don't have email yet. So I, I recommend that you read this paper by Rosen. And that took me to uh, a paper uh, by Walter. And both of them were addressing uh, employers' decisions uh, on how many workers uh, to hire and how many hours to have them, uh, have them work. And I decided to do a dissertation uh, based on that. Um, and of course, the typical Northwestern dissertation at the time was to pick an interesting problem, set up a, dyna a dynamic uh, optimizing model, uh, solve it for the comparative dynamic and comparative static uh, properties, and then try to test the predictions uh, using the best possible uh, economic techniques. And so my dissertation really was uh, what determines uh, hours of, of work and uh, per employee from the demand side. And there were some extensions of it. And, and I should say, one of my advisors, not Dale, told me, it would never work. But I uh, didn't have any other ideas in mind, so I decided to do it. And ultimately, uh, it led uh, right after graduation to a book, an AER paper, uh, and a paper in the Journal of Economic Theory, and one other paper. So I never would tell any of my graduate students it wouldn't work. I, I would let them figure it out themselves. And I know you went on from there um, uh, to several different uh, academic jobs before you ended up at Cornell. Yeah. So I, uh, the, the year that I was in the job market, Berkeley did something different. Uh, they did not interview people at the meetings. They sent a group of their faculty around to universities early at the start of uh, my job market year. Um, and then they made me an offer in September, which would expire the week after the meetings. Well, when other universities found out uh, about that, I immediately got lots of similar offers from places like Berkeley, I'm sorry, Stanford, uh, Hopkins, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin. 
I think I had about 10 offers, which all expired a week after the meetings. So I had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do. And ultimately, uh, I accepted the offer from um, Berkeley. But my fear of failure came back and I came close to having a nervous breakdown at the thought of going there. And so my advisors helped me to get out of the Berkeley job. And I spent uh, a year uh, in Chicago teaching at Loyola University. And Dale was away the next year. So I got to write a second dissertation on my own and began to realize I did not want to spend my career at Loyola University. Uh, and somehow the University of Massachusetts at Amherst found me and I went there. Um, and the first two years were heaven. Uh, Hugo Sunshine was already there. Vernon Smith was, was there. And I remember asking Vernon, how could you leave Brown University to come to UMass? And he said to me, wherever I am is a great university. So, so it, it was terrific. But then a chairman, uh, based upon a departmental vote, had rejected reappointing an assistant professor who was a radical economist. And the dean overruled him. Uh, and the chairman resigned, saying, uh, if you tell me I'm not appointing people who are good enough, I'm willing to agree with you. But if you reject my recommendation, uh, I'm not going to work with you. And after that, all hell broke loose, and the dean appointed uh, five Marxist economists without, with tenure without a departmental vote. So Hugo and Vernon left right away, and I knew that I would, I would have to leave. And, uh, but in the year that I was at uh, writing my second dissertation, as it would be, uh, I met Al Rees because he came and gave a talk uh, at Cornell. And up to that point, the only thing I knew about unions was from Al's book. And Al invited me down to Princeton to give a talk. Uh, and I was speaking with you, describing what I was going to talk about. And you explained to me that the underlying model wasn't uh, appropriate, because if you used it, there would be nothing to estimate. And, and, and then you walked into the seminar, and you did not open up your mouth. Uh, and so you saved me the embarrassment, and I was simply able to say it's just heuristic because <laughs> if, if, if you use the function I had used, then all of the elasticities would be uh, one. There would be nothing to estimate. But uh, you, you, were, you were very kind, uh, and after the seminar, you s said to me, uh, why don't we write this paper on the same topic together, and we did. Uh, and then it turned out you were one of a two-person visiting committee for the ILR school, and uh, who was going to recommend to the dean 
how to bring the, the economics group into the 20th century. Now, th th this was already 1975, so <laughs> they had missed the boat for a long while. And you visited and you recommended two people. And the, uh, well, you gave them a list of names. And the first one was uh, my friend, uh, Dan Hammermesh. And for some strange reason, he turned the job down. So the next year, they came back to me. Uh, and that's how I wound up at Cornell. And you've been there ever since. Uh, I have, uh, because uh, the ILR school was not as restrictive as I fears, feared it would be. Uh, I was free to work on anything that I wanted. Uh, and uh, my, one of my first uh, major public papers was a paper I had done on the economics of religion. Dan had published a paper on the economics of suicide that uh, was published in the Journal of Political Economy. And although we were friends, we were also competitors. So uh, with a, a visiting faculty member at the University of Massachusetts, when I was still there, we decided what's better than a paper of the economics of suicide? How about a multi-lifetime paper uh, where you get utility from consumption in the afterlife and consumptions while alive? And although this paper started out as a joke, uh, it became a very important paper. It's published in the JPE. Uh, and uh, often I'm called the, along with Adam Smith, who discussed the economics of religion, uh, back in 1775, we were the two founders of what is now a subfield uh, of of economics, um, and you know, and, and that was just wonderful. Uh, all I had to do uh, was to teach a required introductory class on labor economics, which all of our students uh, took, and since Bob Smith and I. Uh, had made the decision to uh, uh, write a modern textbook, uh, which was accessible to people who didn't know calculus. Uh, that was not a problem for me. And over the years, I had freedom to change uh, uh, my research interest whenever I wanted, as long as I con continued to teach that required class. In labor, and of course, your textbook has been around for a long time. The textbook has been around, but I have to confess that I've had nothing to do with it since uh, 1995, <laughs> when I became a vice president of uh, Cornell. Well, let's talk about that. It's, I think since that time that you mentioned, the 90s, uh, you devoted much of your research to, and not only research, but also uh, energy in actually in involving yourself in the administration of universities, to the economics of higher education. What would you say are the two main things that you tried to stress there? Uh, can I first go back to 1977 and say when I came up for promotion to full professor uh, at Cornell, three trustees tried to block my promotion. 
because of testimony that I had given in a regulatory proceedings that involved the communication of Workers of America and New York Telephone. And Frank Rhodes, uh, who had recently become president of Cornell and didn't know me from a hole in the wall, stood up and said, academic decisions should best be left to academics. And my promotion went through. And after that, uh, I would do anything I could to help Frank uh, and the university prosper. And so I started serving on faculty budget committees. And one of the first issues was we don't have money to be competitive with uh, the other Ivy League schools in terms of financial aid. What should we do? And we hit upon the idea of doing preferential packaging, where you give more grant aid and less loans to uh, people who uh, uh, you really want. And I wrote the first economics paper that provided a theoretical model that justified that. And over the years, I kept serving on those committees and doing some research on, on higher education. And Frank, who had become a mentor uh, of mine, made a series of provosts progressively uh, involved me more and more uh, in uh, academic decision-making. And eventually in 1995, um, I uh, was a vice president for the final three months of the Rhodes uh, presidency. Uh, and then I stayed on when Hunter Rowling became president for, uh, for three years. So the, the knowledge I had and the research that I had done on higher education, when I left the vice presidency, I had to decide what to do. And Frank said, you would be a wonderful provost at another research one university. So I went to another mentor who was a man named Bill Bone, uh, you were well acquainted with. And Bill by then was the president of the Mellon Foundation. And he said to me, don't become an administrator. You have the ability to influence higher education in general by writing. So I said, would you give me some money? And he said, uh, we don't support individuals. We support centers. So set one up and come back to me. And I did. And that led to uh, the, the last 20 years of my career at Cornell uh, when uh, I had a higher education research center and freedom to work on whatever I wanted. You know, I have a couple of questions for getting to the end that I, that I would like to get your opinions about. First, you mentioned Bill Bowen, uh, who was a labor economist, uh, president of Princeton University, and, and uh, there's actually quite a long history of people that work in industrial relations and labor economics being academic, academic administrators, including, of course, the famous Clark Kerr at Berkeley. Uh, but even more recently, Becky Blank at the University of Wisconsin. Do you think there's some connection, for a reason why that happens? I, I, th I think there is, uh, which is, uh, although 
economic reasoning is helpful in uh, leading a university. There are many times when it is not helpful. And industrial relations people understand that the world is a very, very complicated place and that you have to uh, build up relationships with all of the parties in the universities, the, the alumni, uh, the uh, students, the uh, administrators, the faculty, and keep all of them involved in the decision-making process. I'm always reminded when someone says what you did, the famous comment of, of uh, Clark Kerr about how you, I'm sure you know it too, how you, how, what you really need to do as an academic administrator is, is give the students sex, the alumni football, and the faculty parking. If that were true, there would be uh, many more administrators because that are not uh, IR people, because that <laughs> certainly is not the case today. Let me let me ask you one more thing. I just I, I think it's important issue that's come up. Uh, you, I'm sure, have followed this in the Chronicle of Higher Education and other places. There have been these remarkable episodes of sexual harassment for which there have been substantial uh, university payments. Uh, I know University of Southern California uh, forked over more than a billion dollars in some kind of reparations. What's your take on how this ever came to be such a big problem? It, it came to be a, uh, a big problem because uh, administrators partially did not get the information they needed from uh, people below them, and uh, partially because uh, some of the administrators were, in fact, uh, uh, doing the same things themselves and violating university policies uh, in, in doing that. But I think it's more generally because the changes going on in higher education are extraordinary now. Students are thought to be consumers. You have to make consumers happy. You can't make consumers happy if uh, they are getting low grades. And that puts pressure uh, on faculty to raise grades and makes the faculty uh, un unhappy. Uh, consumers now have phones uh, which take pictures. If anything that any administrator says or anything that any faculty member says that uh, any student finds offensive, will be spread all around the campus with, uh, within five minutes, which leads to problems. And events are taken totally out of uh, context. Um, faculty uh, uh, are losing the privileges, many of the privileges that tenured faculty have, uh, because to keep everybody happy, uh, the administrators have to involve staff and students uh, in their decisions uh, as well. And the job of being a president keeps getting more complicated 
um, students, uh, as you know, there was a former Princeton professor, I believe, who was an extraordinary chemist and wrote the book on uh, how to teach chemistry. It, it may be chemical engineering. Uh, and he went and became a lecturer at uh, NYU after he retired. And students complained uh, that uh, it was impossible to get into graduate school because he was so hard grading, even though he had watered down his test and uh, had provided uh, extra lectures on film to try to help the students. And NYU fired him because he was a lecturer. Um, so, you know, the, the, the control that students have has just fundamentally changed the nature of uh, being an academic. Ron, uh, I think it's time for us to end our discussion today. I want to thank you. Our guest today has been Ronald Ehrenberg, the Irving M. Ives Professor of Industrial and uh, Labor Relations and Economics at Cornell University. Uh, please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University, when we'll speak with uh, Lord Richard Layard, the founding director of the Center for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.